Meaning is, I think, a manifestation of a lot of this. Like when we feel like we're needed, we're valued, we're, we're operating within a framework where like you, like you articulated before, we know our place, we know our role, um, we have a greater sense of psychological security, which makes us more willing to take risks. And one of the problems we're seeing now isn't just a lot, you know, isn't just like people aren't willing to take a leap of faith towards religion. We're seeing a decline of business dynamism. We're seeing a decline in all sorts of risk taking, negative risk taking too. Like people are, young people are, are less likely to have, you know, premarital and unprotected sex than they used to be, you know, so they're less likely to drink and drive. And so that's good. I mean, they're not taking bad risks, but they're also not getting jobs necessarily, or they're not willing to do things that involve that kind of leap of faith movement, stepping beyond the world I know um, and and trying something new and exploring something. Our universities are, are, are clearly going in this direction of, a, you know, of a way from like a curious growth oriented, explorative, like dynamic environment to a very security oriented, like highly regulated, highly controlled safety focused environment. So we're seeing this broadly within our culture and within our within our economy. And so even people who may have no interest in religious revival um, should be concerned about this at the you know cultural and economic and scientific frontiers too. Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. I'm your host, Paul Hanleitner. We are in part two of a series entitled A Quest for Meaning as a Spiritual Species. And in this series, I'm talking to experts in various disciplines who believe that the guiding story that tells us that the world is pure chance, random, chaotic, and devoid of any objective meaning is a lie. And while some of these guests may or may not have levels of agreement with my Christian convictions, they all share in the conviction that humans are fundamentally a spiritual species on a quest for meaning. Can we find common ground against the common enemy of nihilism? I'm hopeful we can. In part two of our series, I am sharing the second half of my conversation with Dr. Clay Rutledge and Ben Wilterdink. I really felt like the conversation started to take off into important territory at this point. So if you enjoyed part one of the conversation, I think you're going to love this episode. Dr. Clay Rutledge is a leading expert in existential psychology. He's a highly cited scholar who has published more than 100 scholarly papers, co-edited three books, authored two books, and received numerous awards for his academic research and student mentorship. His work has been featured in pretty much any major media and news outlet that you can think of, so I won't list them all. Currently, he serves as the Vice President of Research and Director of the Human Flourishing Lab at the Archbridge Institute and is the co-editor of Perfectus Magazine. Ben Wilterdink is the Director of Programs at the Archbridge Institute, and his work focuses on the connection between economic and social policy and existential meaning. Ben had written this fantastic article for Perfectus. I talked about this in the, the first episode. It was a great article on nihilism and social policy, and it made me think bringing him into the conversation with myself and Dr. Clay Rutledge might really help us think about how institutions and systemic structures of culture impact meaning, and he made some really important contributions, provoked me to think more deeply, um, offered some even some practical policy challenges that I'm sure will generate some discussion. I think there'll be some good opportunity for maybe nuanced disagreement or even the opportunity to see in a new light. I'm certainly open to that as well. This podcast, my writing on my Substack and video content on YouTube is made possible without advertisement because of generous listeners just like you over on Patreon. To continue my work in 2023, we need to hit a Patreon goal of 200 patrons by March. So if you found my work valuable and you appreciate that I'm not colonizing your valuable attention with advertisements, well, please consider supporting and get access as a thank you to a bunch of bonus video content, Q&A episodes, and live discussions with me and other patrons on Zoom, and so much more. You can find out all about that by clicking the link in the description below. And with that, here is part two of A Quest for Meaning as a Spiritual Species, featuring Dr. Clay Rutledge and Ben Wilterdink. Yeah, I think you're talking about something about, it makes me think about the difference between mapped territory and unmapped territory psychologically, is that there has to be something 
there has to be room for the intuitive. Obviously, the intuitive can lead us astray, but without the intuitive, how do we ever move beyond the data, which is the map territory, into the unmapped, which then we can map later? You know, I feel like that's at the the core of of human progress is that exploratory sense, that that heroic pioneering sense of going, all right, here's what I know, and am I comfortable moving? from what I know into the unknown. And that, that seems to get us into the religious sphere. I would very much like to continue to live in a pluralistic society where people who are going, I'm trying to move from the known to the unknown because I believe there's more to be explored, can get together and go, all right, here's what I saw from my vantage point. And we, we'd have social institutions and structures that would allow that dialogue to happen. So I could sit down with a Muslim or sit down with a Buddhist or, or sit down with a, you know, someone like a John Verveke, who's kind of outside all of those those terms right now, but he's very much open to religious thinking to go, we can't be stuck in Charles Taylor's imminent frame, where all we have is imminence. And that there seems to be a sense in which when all we have is the imminent, something about us as a human species is not satisfied with that. Um, yeah. There was a theologian who passed away, um, Stanley Grentz, uh, passed away a few years ago and then wrote a book, theolo- uh, I don't know, something about the commun- uh, theology as the community of God or something like that. Anyways, he made this really fascinating point that it seems like among all the other species on the planet, for the most part, uh, we look at other mammals, they're relatively content living in their habitat, you know, Um they don't go exploring unless, you know, resources in their area have dried up and they need to go find other resources to help them survive. But there seems to be something fundamental in the human species about like, we're almost a degree of being discontent. Now his theological Mm -hmm. argument was that there was something in that, that was a yearning to direct us to the source of all that is true, good and beautiful. So we would never just be satisfied with that. But I, I think it's fascinating that we do see that, uh, you know, whatever you make of an Elon Musk, there's something about his desire to explore space. That's fascinating. And it's intriguing to us. And I, it's, there's intuition there, you know, he's doing a lot of science, but we don't know what we're getting into entirely. And I, I do, I do fear that losing that side of life um, does deprive people of meaning. Clay, do you think there's any sort of, from the scientific standpoint that there's signposts that might point to that being true in any sense that we, we need to pursue transcendent sources of truth, goodness, and beauty. Even if, even if people want to acknowledge it's just performative, fine. It's just utilitarian, fine. Maybe there isn't any sort of objective transcendence, but there seems to be a need for the transcendent. Yeah. Yeah. No, in fact, when you were talking, I was was thinking about, I'm not saying this to like plug a future book but i just turned in the manuscript for my next book and the introduction which is which is about nostalgia but it really is focused on human what i in the very introduction the introduction of the book i i argue that humans are actually a a progress oriented species by nature along the lines of everything you just said we're never satisfied right we 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 tinker we explore we were always, even if it's just some little annoyance, like we want things to be a little bit better for ourselves. Even subcultures like the Amish, who we think of as rejecting a modernity, um, innovate. They they use technology in a way that you know they hack it in a way to make it work within their you know within their worldview. And, you know, and so I, th- and I very much think part of that is our growth oriented nature, like our desire for the transcendent, our desire to reach beyond what we know um, is, is very much, I think, an existential approach. And all this ties to the stuff we're talking about, because uh, a framework that I use in, in, in my work on meaning and existential psychology is you can think of humans as being kind of motivated by by two opposing motivational forces. One is what we call psychological defense, protection, security mode, right? And 
that really is, I'm being vigilant for against threats. I'm trying to protect myself. I hear a noise, I, you know, in, in the bushes, I, I, I become more like focused uh, uh, on that. That's not the time I want to explore the world. It's the time I want to protect what I have, which is important. Defense is, defense is important, right? And, um, but what makes humans cool is like you said, we don't just, we don't just set things up to be like, okay, now I'm going to protect what I have. Um, we want more and, and that can go in bad ways. Right. And I think right. we have, you know, a Green. long history, of, right. Of religious tr- traditions that try to essentially function to moderate us, like to hold to, you know, to, from being overindulgent <laughs> and greedy <laughs> and selfish. Um, right. And, um, gluttonous, um, but part of that is like we, we you know, that part of that growth is it's, it's self-growth. I want to become a better person. It's it's growth. You know, it's like exploration of the physical world. It's our desire to to, to map new terrain. Um, and that has allowed us to, you know, to really advance, advance progress. It's also obviously involved us doing bad things. I mean, the nature of risk is that all risks don't pan out, right? right. Some explorations end in tragedy and catastrophe, others in great success. But I, 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 I totally agree with that. Like, and so one of the, one of the things that um, in my work on meaning and also on and nostalgia, which is very much connected, that you know that I've, I've realized, and you know, this isn't unique to me. Other scholars have made this point too. Is there are certain psychological resources, such as meaning in life, that really help? us push us from like push us from that defense orientation towards that growth orientation people who study relationships often frame this in what's called attachment theory which is when you're starting when you're an infant um your parents are your attachment like they they provide your security and it's when you feel like that security is met that as a as a child you're more willing to explore the world. So they used to do these attachment studies called the strange situation, which I take a toddler and put him in an environment in which um, typically it was the the, the mother, the caregiver, um, who um, would be there or not be there. And when the mother's there, um, and this is like a reliable source of security, the kids are more willing to explore the environment. Um, and so um, this, you know, in a lot in a lot of these researchers, what they discovered is as we get older. Our parents don't, are no longer a security system. Our culture is. Our religion is. Um, God's the ultimate attachment figure. All of that, right? And so, but that that security, that sense of stability and security, allows us to like encourages us to explore. We feel comfortable exploring. Without that security in place, exploratory behavior is very anxiety provoking, right? So, meaning is i think a manifestation of a lot of this like when we feel like we're needed we're valued we're, we're operating within a framework where like you like you articulated before we know our place we know our role um we have a greater sense of psychological security which makes us more willing to take risks and one of the problems we're seeing now isn't just a lot you know isn't just like people aren't willing to take a leap of faith towards religion we're seeing a decline in business dynamism we're seeing a decline in all sorts of risk taking, negative risk taking too. Like people are, young people are are less likely to have you know premarital and unprotected sex than they used to be. You know, so they're less likely to drink and drive, and so that's good. I mean, they're not taking bad risks, but they're also not getting jobs necessarily, or they're not willing to do things that involve that kind of leap of faith movement, stepping beyond the world I know. Um, and and trying something new and exploring something. Our universities are, are are clearly going in this direction of a you know of away from like a curious growth oriented explorative like dynamic environment to a very security oriented like highly regulated highly controlled safety focused environment. So we're seeing this broadly within our culture and within our within our economy. And so even people who may have no interest in religious revival. Um, should be concerned about this at the you know cultural and economic and scientific frontiers too. Yeah, and I think you see that with a guy like a Jonathan Haidt you mentioned, right? There's mm-hmm. there are people that would consider themselves non-religious, secular that are going. This seems to be, you know, we've we're moving away from that sort of ridiculous utopian perspective of the new atheists like Dawkins that were like, all we have to do is remove these and all will be ushered into our, you know, secular utopian paradise. And I don't, don't think that's true. And I think we also see that, 
you have to, I think, and I was just talking about this with a, another guest last night, Damian Walter, who uh, writes and explores science fiction and fantasy, really interesting guy. He's done some stuff with like rebel wisdom and then anyway, any rate, um, I think, I think we're coming to this point that we are moving beyond Taylor's secular age and into a post-secular age where people are recognizing what you've been saying for years, Clay, is that we're we're fundamentally a spiritual species. So we better get down to being comfortable with that and then start having honest, open dialogues about what is the best story that we want to follow that might actually corroborate. So we could have multiple paths of corroborating evidence that go, hey, we're seeing here uh, from the biological level that we are fundamentally a social species. What stories encourage us to to contribute to the flourishing of the social groups that we inhabit. I think the conversations seem to be shifting in that direction. I'm actually really encouraged by those signs. Ben, from your perspective, as someone that thinks about how on the social level and social policy, um, meaning is... Um, the narratives that provide us with a sense of meaning have to find manifestation into our social policy and we in our institutions. What would you tell someone? I think there's obviously increasing distrust in social institutions, whether you're someone's on the political right, political left, libertarian, whatever it might be, you see distrust in institutions. Obviously on the right, you see distrust in academia as a social social institution. You see distrust in government as a social institution, at least that was a thing once upon a time. <laughs> and then on the on the left, you see distrust in religious institutions. You see maybe distrust in traditional family units. Someone listening that goes, Let's just burn it all down. Like, just burn it all down. Start from scratch. We are in such a mess. What would you say about like the value of social institutions, the necessity of social institutions for pursuing not just meaning individually, but recognizing our meaning is intrinsically connected to the meaning of others? Um, well, I think I think you know we are seeing a, a lot of the institutional breakdown. I think the. Uh, Technology is a, a big part of that uh, as well. And I think, you know, there used to be a phrase, you know, all politics is local. And uh, I think that has been totally inverted uh, with the internet where it's all politics is national, you know, where it used to be, uh, you know, you had a city council person who was focused on fixing, you know, the stoplight at some such and such intersection. And that, that was really where a lot of people's minds were made up. There's, you know, local people engaged on that. And now it is, you know, even, even in these more local races, even in, you know, um, that kind of a context, it's all filtered through this lens of national politics uh, and national cultural uh, culture war stuff. Right. And like that's that's filtered down not only from our national politics, but down to the local level. Uh, I think, um, you know, and Yuval Levin is probably the best authority. Uh, he's written a book uh, on this, A Time to Build, but he basically has. Um, put forward the thesis that our, you know, institutions used to be these things that you joined and then they would shape you and they'd shape your character and you would allow yourself to be shaped by those institutions. So like, you know, you're joining something like the New York Times or something and say, you know, I'm as a journalist at the New York Times, these, this is my responsibility. These are my duties. I'm going to be shaped by this institution. And now institutions have been transformed into essentially platforms for people to perform on, right? And so that's, it's less about being shaped in that way. And it's more about being perform like a platform for performance. And so I think, you know, acknowledging that, uh, and, and that's a really good place to start, but also to your point, you know, we can't get away from these things. We need, we need institutions, we need um, social connections. Uh, I would say the best thing that, you know, for a practical thing is, you know, start as local as possible. I think that sometimes can be counterintuitive because we feel like we don't want to start there. We feel like there's these systems that are, you know, way above us so that we can't even move or anything like that. Um, and I would say, you know, just do your best to disregard that. You know, maybe, maybe you can, uh, maybe you can't change the culture war, but you can change your neighborhood or your family um, or, you know, something. Uh, and I think that if people took that first step, you'd be shocked at what you can do. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. 
um, really like what can be done or how quickly you can kind of bubble out um, into into different spheres. So I think I think that's uh, I think that's really really important. And then I also think it's um, if you're going to join these institutions. Uh, attempt to actually have the mindset of, you know, I'm going to allow myself to be formed and shaped in, in my character in this way, rather than making it about me and my performance. And to some extent, that's a conscious choice you can make. Uh, and, and, that's, and that is truly, I think, countercultural at this point. Uh, and so I think that that is something um, that we should, we should opt to do. And then the last thing I'll mention is I think you know, this is something that I've I've tried to emphasize when I, I talk to some other folks about this, but it's, you know, Clay's point about it's not just being social, it's not just being in a group, but it's being needed, right? So I think that this is sort of the danger and that there's some um, options or alternatives to some of these things that are popping up that are purely about bringing people together in a physical space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good, but but that's not complete. That's only a start, right? It's, it's one thing to say like, Oh, Hey, we're all here. We're all together. Okay, great. You know, Uh, but you've got to have some kind of organizing principle, some other reason that you're there, some other project um, that you can pursue. And so I think that to the extent that we're going to try to rebuild these institutions, um, it can't just be about being physically together or being together for the sake of being together. Uh, it has to be organized around goals and purposes. And, uh, and then the rest will come, I think. Hmm. Institutions, um, institutions are the vehicles by which values are transmitted. Um, from either of your perspective, when you look around, let's take, you know, though you've just encouraged us to think locally about our participation, Ben, uh, it does seem like over the local is this, pardon my theological language, like a principality and power that is always like, how does this thing, this thing seems to be subservient to a larger thing. And that's, you know, sociologically, that's kind of how culture works. You have a macro culture which carries the dominant cultural norms and practices, you know, uh, everything from when you go to an NFL football game, you better put your hand over your heart and sing the national anthem, or, you know, you better not take a knee or do any of these other postures, right? Because the macro cultural value is this, but you obviously have underneath that subcultures and micro cultures that might have different values. And the culture war is like a collision of, subcultures with a macro culture vying for maybe a new narrative or a new new set of values to be transmitted. Um, obviously, if we have like a crisis of meaning, uh, meaning, meaning, um, and maybe Clay, you can remind me on the, the authors that co-authored this paper in 2016 on like the three structures of meaning. Michael Steger, is that one mm-hmm. of them? Um, coherence, purpose, and significance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess they're going to be making an addendum to that and adding a fourth category. Mm-hmm. But in order for you to find meaning, right, you have to see that there's a coherent structure, repeatable pattern um, to the world. If you don't see that, right, you're it's going to undercut the other two pillars, which is purpose. Is there an overarching goal to life? And third, significance. Do I play any role in life's overarching purpose? And so when people are plugging into institutions or they're looking at institutions and they see institutions transmitting values, uh, I'm curious if we are in experiencing a meaning crisis, that seems to be a signal that institutions that we currently have are in need of reform because they're not transmitting like a coherent story. They're not transmitting a coherent story that points to life having an overarching purpose and points to them having significant role to play in that story. I'm curious from your vantage point, either one of you, do you feel like our institutions and the guiding stories that are being transmitted in our institutions currently in the West that they're devoid of particular values that you go, I think there's values here that we've either lost or neglected that need to be recovered. I'll, I'll bring up one as an illustration, right? I think Clay, when you you talking about lack of duty and people avoiding things or Ben, you, you mentioned people pulling out of the workforce or, you know, I see something 
as a lack of resilience as a value, for example, like somewhere along the way, our institutions are not transmitting the value of resilience that, you know, at the first brush up against resistance, we don't take that as a sign that something is wrong. Do you see there being um, any other sort of glaring absence of values being transmitted in our cultural institutions that you would say, I I think we need a revival in some sense of of these institutions, or, re, uh, or these values, a recovery of these values. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I think I think you know I've mentioned this word before, but I think duty it is a big one. And and at the at the national level, you you see this a lot. So at Archbridge, we've been doing some work on the benefits of of patriotism. And the idea isn't to be like, you know, a like over the top, like America, you know, kind of, you know, you see this sort of kind of almost obnoxious, you know, almost like collective narcissistic view of patriotism. The idea is really rooted in in social psychological research on the value of superordinate group identities. And that's what I was thinking about when you were saying all that, all this is the benefit of having a superordinate group. So a group that, you know, consumes other groups is that especially in a diverse and dynamic society like the United States is we we want to rec- to to maintain the balance of a pluralistic society where we can largely be like hey you're doing your thing I'm doing my thing as long as we're not hurting each other like we you know we we can do our own thing is um just the way human nature works whether we like it or not it just is like because of our group oriented tribalistic nature like we need something that that connects us like it's it's easy in the abstract to say we should just let people do their own thing maybe there's a few libertarians that will, could could go along with that but most people just aren't like that to be honest um um they want to tell other people what to do and they you know and um there's a, so that's where you get these conflicts of narratives and visions that you're, you that you're talking about so if you have some overarching framework that sets the rules and the values to say we do share something that is um, above, that is superordinate to our differences, right? And a lot of times I think the most practical thing is the nation, right? Like we share, you know, in terms of laws and, you know, legally, like these are the things that bind us, right? Um, And, you know, there's there's a component of that that is can be dark, can go negative. I mean, people, and people are rightly worried about the dangers of nationalism. Um, but the but it doesn't have to you know there's dangers in there's dangers in over exercising <laughs> I mean there's dangers in lots of things that are good for you um, but if that that kind of shared vision of that we're Americans I think can really help promote that the value of of duty so if I say Paul you and I might have differences we might not share the same politics um, you know you 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 gave the example of Muslims and Buddhists we might not you know people might not share the same religion. Um, and of course, sometimes those things are going to be in conflict in important ways, but we're Americans. And I owe you, I have a duty to you as a function of that shared identity. Clearly, if you look at people um, who enlist in the military, for instance, there's a lot of reasons people enlist in There's survey work, research on why people enlist in the military. Some are practical reasons, like they don't know what they want to do after high school. And so, it's a path to training, to professional training. Um, it's a way to get out of a bad environment or like a, a lousy family. Um, but one of the most common answers is uh, like a calling, a service to country and a duty. And um, I know that there's a long history of cynicism towards that. It's not like a brand new concept. And some of it is well-earned because of bad policy decisions that the government has made in terms of how it's, you know, how it's rushed into wars or put sent people in conf, you know conflict zones. It's not at all. It's not at all a, a rosy story of, of military history, but that is an, ex- an example of something in which people are saying like there. It, it doesn't matter that I've never met you. What's cool about like in that and they like I've never met you, um, but I have a duty to you. You saw this in like nine eleven where firefighters, first responders ran into danger. People do this all the you know time. They don't know you're a complete stranger, but it's their duty. It's their role. They've taken on this role, and they have and they have a duty to you, regardless of your beliefs, 
regardless of your differences. And so I do think as, you know, it might sound um, kind of ironic, but the best way, in my opinion, to protect a pluralist society in which we largely let people have freedom (laughs) and do their own thing is to have some sense of unification under a shared identity. We're not going to have that with a religion. We're not, we're not a nation that's going to have that with a shared religion. Right. Um, um, But we can do it through like a kind of a civic religion or national kind of um, unification. That doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. It's like a family families fight families, like families are, you know, there's a lot of drama or whatever, but a good family knows that when needed, when it hits the fan, you do, you step up and you do, you have a duty to your family members, regardless of your differences. And I think that we need that value of duty more um, and I, I mean, I personally don't, I mean, there's small pockets of people that see that, but I don't see that. And it's not a, you know, people, you know, my friends on, on the right will often claim patriotism as like a right wing kind of thing. But a lot of the stuff you see on, you know, on the far right, especially is, is not really that it's not that, you know, they don't feel a duty to their, you know, to their fellow citizens who don't share their politics, mm. um, and same on the far left. Um, and so I do think we we need to restore that sense more that, you know, we're Americans and that gives us some sense of duty to each other. Hmm. I think for me, the, the, the back and forth on this, Clay, is, is challenging. It's like, what is the most appropriate superordinate structure mm-hmm. that could bind people together in a way that... Um, that, that produces the maximal amount of flourishing, mm-hmm. right? And so if you go, you know, can we get to the highest level of agreement together, right? Um, and maybe not agreement in all of the particulars about it, but if we go, you know, um, you take, you know, you know, something as simple as crosstown rivals in football, you know, right. for high school football, and you go, well, the thing that binds us together is the mascot, our football <laughs> team. Um, but that doesn't scale, right? I mean, there's some value to that at one level, right? There's value in the community. It goes, Hey, as long as you're wearing, you know, I'm here in Minnesota, we'll scale it up a little bit to to the national football league. You know, as long as you're wearing a a Vikings Jersey or Vikings hoodie in, uh, inside the, the stadium, you're good. But if you're wearing a Packers Jersey or something else, you're, you're our enemy. And so the thing that I, I get a little bit concerned about when I, um, for a little bit of like pushback would be like, okay, I understand the need for national identity, but the question I that emerges in my mind is okay, in a global, increasingly mm-hmm. connected global context, what happens for those, even just on a practical level, who do business with people across the world? And can we find any sort of superordinate structure beyond that, that would make us go, all right, I have a vested interest in the welfare and well-being of not just my fellow American, but this person, you know, my wife years ago, she had a um, a small like textile business she would design. And obviously you, you just can't make stuff in the U.S. for cheap, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. And she was concerned about working environments, you know, working environments in China and where she was getting her materials from. And that's driven by a certain sense of her Christian conviction that, Mm. you know, those people that might be working in those factories are just as much shared image bearers as she is here in America. But I could also see potentially, and feel free to give me even counter pushback on this, Clay. Mm -hmm. I can see where we've had at times that is the superordinate structure, but then it's like, who cares if they're making stuff and who cares if Jurgen Muslims and are, are making the stuff for dirt cheap, you know, because for right now, the thing that coalesces and binds me together is this identity. So I guess the thing I'm really curious about is how could we get to like a superordinate structure that would go, all right, I've got my national identity, which is really good. Cause that's better. You know, if, 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 uh, if I'm driving down the road here in one of these Minnesota snowstorms and I, you know, if I was really attached to white bear Lake high school, which is where in that, that school district. And I see someone with a forest Lake, you know, hoodie on, do I not help them 
out of the ditch in the snowstorm. No, because like you're saying, I might have a higher duty to, well, it's a fellow Minnesotan. It's a fellow American. I'm really curious as to in a global context, like is American good enough? Or maybe you're just suggesting that's a good starting point. How would we ever get to the point of going like, all right, I am seeking the flourishing because I recognize even as an American, my flourishing is bound up in, well, we just saw it with gas prices, right? I mean, somehow because of a war in Ukraine and there's all sorts of factors, we see gas prices go through the roof as it's like, what's going on over there is connected to me. So I have to care about these people too. I don't know. What do you, th- what do you think about any of that? Or Ben, feel free to chime in too as well. Yeah, I, I think your pushback is 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 good. <laughs> um, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, I mean, I, to me, it is it is more of like the practical, like, well, at what level can you scale something to? Right. And I, I do agree we're in a we're in a challenge. So the American thing might help us solve some problems within our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was, you know, my parents were missionaries. I was born in West Africa, and you know, very much part of the Christian mission was, you know, along the lines of what you said about your wife, is that all humans have, you know, it doesn't matter what country they're from or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're all um, part of, we're all part of the same human family, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you can have the problem with a with a specific religious superordinate group is, you know, where we don't just have one religion in the world. And, right. and sometimes this can obviously has in the past led to led to conflict as well, um, just like nations do. Um, but um, it is, it is like, well, you have to have something, I guess, and something that's better true. than something's better than nothing. And um, the challenge with a, I mean, I think a secular humanist might say, well, we can't have universal human values. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that's part of that. But I do think that we have to also understand the limits. And, and you know, maybe we're pushing beyond the limits with technology. We have to understand the, the limits of the human condition. And one of the things that I know evolutionary psychologists and others have pointed out is we are in a challenging space in which the the environment in which we evolved in was a, were small, smaller groups. And now that we're we're scaling and we can scale things to like our symbolic capacities, like we can have a, a symbol like the flag um, or the football mascot or whatever that represents a shared idea and a shared identity that's not grounded in any physical reality, but it's it's that representation that we have. And so in theory, you, you know, you could scale that out as, as wide as possible, but humans are, um, Ernest Becker made this point, like humans are, in, in conflict in the sense that we're material beings that are chained by biology. Yes. Um, yeah. And yet we have Im- imaginations that we can, he had it like, he had a great line, something like um, we can, um, we can speculate about infinity. Um, but at the end of the day, we were encased in material bodies that rot <laughs> and mm-hmm. this, you know, will die. Um, and, and so we have that duality of like, we are chained by at some level by biological realities, we have these incredible imaginations, which allow us like really to pursue progress. So it's not that I think national, you know, like the national level is the, is the total answer or that it doesn't also maybe create a a, a ton of problems. Um, But clearly in, you know, in present United States with, you know, polarization and issues, if we don't, if we don't scale up beyond to the basic level, we don't scale up beyond these like conflicting tribes, and we keep, we're not going to come together, and we're not going to not going to not going to be able to compromise in a way that sustain freedom. Like a lot of my friends, and you know, who are you know, you know, probably would describe themselves as as libertarian. I think often neglect that. You know, they're very understandably very very skeptical about the ideas of like nationalism. <laughs> Or, you know, like a national identity in a lot of ways, because, you know, that can be in conflict with individual liberty. Mm. Um, but again, I think realistically, you have to understand what how most humans approach the world. And sometimes so the, the best way to preserve liberty is yeah. to have some sense of larger identity. I hear you saying something along the lines of it's like it's, it's a challenge of scale. And mm-hmm. functionality as you scale up. So the higher the superordinate organism becomes, the more amorphous it might also be too. Right. And then right. that becomes, you know, in your domain here, Ben, 
it becomes an issue of when we actually get down to decisions on public policy. So what, what identity markers do we go to, to make those decisions? And that's where it gets really, really difficult. You take something like immigration, right? And it's like, well, do we put, do we put policies in place that we think would be better served for Americans who have lived here for generations? Or do we put policies in place that might be a detriment to those who've been here for generations, but it's a benefit to the the person trying to a refugee, you know, or a just someone trying to find a better better way of life in America. Is that is that a fair way of assessing, like from your vantage point, what you find yourself most wrestling with is the challenge of how does this stuff actually translate to social policies like economic policy, immigration, because that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, picking up on what Clay was saying, this um, there's one inherent uh, advantage, I think, that uh, more of like an American national identity would have is that uh, we we as Americans, pluralism is sort of built into the our DNA in a way that a lot of other countries it's not. And I think that that is both an, an advantage for us as a nation, but also an advantage to um, a stepping stone of, of this superordinate national identity. I think it's a lot of an easier, more intuitive leap to go from like an American national identity to more of like a global human identity uh, than it would be if you were to have an, maybe another nation that is a bit more um, less steeped in that, that pluralistic tradition. So I think that's, I just wanted to make sure I, I noted that, but um, to your point, I think, um, you know, a lot of those ideas, a lot of the public policies that we are looking at are, it's seen as sort of zero sum, um, but whereas there are some policies that are not zero sum, it's like they, they are positive some, like we can both be, we can both be winners. Uh, but I think right now, you know, you, I think you correctly hit on the word identity, which is, you know, we are very much um, poised to attack or reject or accept certain ideas or policy proposals uh, based on identity rather than like thinking through uh, what they actually mean, what they actually are. Uh, And so I think that there is something to be said for sort of this more national um, kind of healing project um, that will make tackling these problems easier. I think when we can, when we can transition from a place where it's just like, well, those people over there clearly hate all of our values and everything that's good and stand for evil. And like we over here are, are, you know, obviously paragons of enlightenment and we understand, we know, like, and uh, I think if we can move beyond that to just say, you know, I, I have a different perspective and I think those people over there are mistaken, mm-hmm. um, but they're probably good people who are striving for the best uh, for all of us. And I, I think that, I think that's really true. I think, you know, basically, I don't think, th- I mean, maybe there are a handful of, of people like this, but most people are not, you know, evil or trying to like bring up about something that's like, uh, you know, inherently bad. Like they just have a, a conflicting, a different vision of like what the good is or the best way to reach that good. And I think that a lot of the the public policy issues that we talk about would be vastly improved if we sort of understood that about each other. Uh, and I think that that would make it a lot easier um, to, to kind of work our way through this. Um, so I think, you know, maybe that's, that's probably where I would, I would start. And I, I think that that's, um, that's super important because that's, that's sort of the meta thing that I think could happen that would make a lot of these more micro, more tangible things um, more feasible to, to address and to get across. And so I think, I mean, that's, that's probably where I would, um, focus a lot of that, but I think, you know, if, if we want to talk about a little bit more of the specifics, I mean, I'm happy to do that as well. I think, you know, one thing Clay and I have been, um, talking a lot about, you know, if you're going to take meaning seriously in a lot of what we are talking about seriously in a public policy space, um, and, and I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant to, uh, to do this because I don't, I don't know, um, you know, I, I would hate for for uh, different you know listeners or other people to think that you know we want to just like take this flag and sort of use it to as a banner to kind of push across like a specific political agenda. Yeah. 
Um, but at the same, so I hope I'm, I'm not going to be doing that, but at no, the same time, free. there are definitely, um, you know, things I think are probably going to be better and things are probably going to be mm-hmm. worse. Uh, and one easy point I think to, um, to, to hit on is if you're going to take meaning in social life, seriously, things that are going to fur- further isolate people or make it easy for people to remain isolated uh, are going to be net negatives for society and for flourishing. And so for us, I think, uh, you know, one place that we can really see this is with a universal basic income. Mm. So that's, that's been a, a, an idea that's, it's not very new. I mean, it's been proposed right. for a while, um, but that's something where I think, uh, you know, on the positive side, it's probably a lot more efficient um, than our convoluted, uh, system that we have now, of like different welfare programs and credits and, and all that stuff. And there is something we said for that efficiency. Um, but at the same time, I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, if there were ever a signal that society could do to the extent that societies can signal things to say to disaffected people who are struggling, um, you don't really matter. <laughs> like, you know, you're not, you know, we can just kind of give you this and then set you over on the shelf and, you know, you're good. You're good, right? You're good. Um, and um, but uh, that's I think that's probably where the rubber meets the road um, for me is, uh, and you know, looking at this this issue of like, no, actually, you are you're valuable and you have something of value to add here and we need you. Uh, mm. And like you can't we can't afford to just have you off playing video games and watching porn your whole life. Like we don't like not only is that not good for you, but like as a society, like we need you to come into this tent and help us out with this. Uh, and yeah. like, and you, and you need to be a part of this. And I think, um, you know, looking at some of the public policies through that lens, um, that's, I think that's probably a really good example of something that I'm just going to be um, really hard on is that, is that idea of the, the universal basic income that requires nothing from people. Hmm. Uh, I think that that's, um, that's probably not going to be a, a very good pathway for us. I'm glad that you actually brought that up. Now it's not, um, in my line of work, I don't I don't give uh, public opinions on on policy, and I kind of allow for that to those dialogues to happen. Uh, and it's also not an area of expertise, so I'd be speaking a little bit outside of my lane. But I'm glad you brought it up because this actually this affords us an opportunity to talk about specifically how people hopefully people could hear, maybe I know there's listeners. I can think of several of them that are uh, Patreon supporters that are probably like UBI is the best. And, but at least they had an opportunity to hear from you the ways in which you see it actually depriving people of meaning or human dignity. And you see it motivated by that instead of just a utilitarian, well, it's going to cost us this much money to do this. And it seems like in our political sphere, especially when we get to the national level, so little of our conversation is actually centered around what is actually contributing to a life of meaning, purpose, and significance. And so much of it seems to be just revolving around, well, here's the data I have on how much this is going to cost us or set us back or how this is going to create this sort of problem. So utilitarian, doesn't consider virtue um, and so to bring that up, even while acknowledging, I, I look forward to getting comments from people that are like, Hey, I don't see it this way, but that's good because at least they had an opportunity to hear your motivations that you, you've, this has been a thought out, um, process for you and those others at Archbridge. And again, I'm not, I don't have, uh, you've given me something to think about. I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other on it, but it, I'm appreciative that we could actually get to, to me, what is the deeper layer underneath the surface that re- that doesn't just reduce people like sometimes they feel in their office cubicle, right? Manifested in Fight Club and the Matrix, that they are simply a cog in some machine that probably doesn't need them. They can be replaced yeah. um, to actually talk about political policy and social policy on that level. Boy, if we could get to that in our national debates, that would be a win, regardless of the direction, you know, the oh, specific yeah. policy. So, uh, guys, I want to thank you for your time to get together today. This has been a blast talking about this. I really like where we've landed. This is a great example of how the way we kind of assess um, these stories, the superordinate structures, and which ones we most identify with are going to have massive implications on things like that. 
on things like social policy and things like economic policy and the way we people might vote or they might get involved in a political process. Um, and so I really love where we landed. Those of you listening, obviously, if you have a, a difference of opinion with me, obviously, I think you actually presented Clay in some sense. I wouldn't, I'm not a Christian nationalist, but in Christian circles, there's been quite a bit of debate about the merits of a revival of sort of Christian nationalism. And, and to me, if I step back and go, if I look at that in the most charitable light possible, what I see people saying that I think are well-intended, and there's also a bunch of people that are not well-intended on that, that front that are just trying to sell right. books, um, that in the best light, I see people saying, put on your mask before helping others. You know, you get that line when you're on, when you're on mm-hmm. a, uh, on the airplane. It's, and the reason behind that is if you don't have yourself in a position where you could help someone, you're not going to be able to help someone. And right. I think maybe the best argument could be made for a sort of strong America that is actually in the role of being able to help better serve the world. And I can hear that. I can entertain mm-hmm. that. And I think that's a, I think that's a a good way to think about that in a charitable light. There's a discussion forum on my Patreon page where if you have a difference of opinion from something I said or Clay or Ben, feel free to share it there as well. And I'll pass along the really, really juicy complaints to them. And (laughs) (laughs) you can, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll give you an opportunity to argue with them on social media or someplace else. But Clay, Ben, thank you for your time. This has been such a great conversation. I'm appreciative of it. Thanks a lot, Paul. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Deep Talks. As I mentioned, there is a discussion forum available for this episode. We have discussion forums on my Patreon page. There's also a a Deep Talks community Discord server. So if you want to get connected with listeners from all over the place and you want to have conversations about this episode or any other things, you can share work that you have. There's been people that have shared awesome like YouTube channels where they're doing Uh, inspections, deep dives into like philosophy and culture. There are people sharing their blogs, other places that they're writing. It's a really cool place that hopefully um, you could find like-minded individuals who are also interested in this intersection of theology and meaning making. But if you wanted to get involved in the discussion forum, you can find out more about that by becoming a patron at any support level. I want to give an extra special thanks to Patreon supporters, Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, and Sam P. Thank you all for your generous support. I quite literally, as I say this all the time, I can't do this work without you. So thank you for your support. If you are interested in keeping this podcast afloat and the other things that I'm doing. Again, please consider supporting on Patreon, but I'd love to hear from you. Um, I'd love to hear your feedbacks, your comments, your objections, your critiques, whatever it may be. You can reach out to me on Patreon, or you can reach out to me on Twitter or uh, on Instagram too as well, at Paul Ann Leitner. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.